is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Today's question is, what is the difference between psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder? Now, to help answer this question about psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder, I'll be using an article that was published in 2016 by Ogloff and colleagues. I'll put the reference to this article in the description for this video. Now, in prior videos, I've discussed psychopathy in some detail and, of course, antisocial personality disorder in some detail. And I have explored the differences between them, but this is really a more comprehensive description of the areas of overlap and the areas that differentiate these two constructs. I'll also be looking at psychopathy and how some of the factors related to it can relate to other personality disorders and other constructs. So first, let's take a look at antisocial personality disorder. Then we'll take a look at psychopathy and then explore the similarities and differences between these two constructs. So with antisocial personality disorder, we see that this is a disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's a cluster B personality disorder. So it's in the same cluster as narcissistic, borderline, and histrionic personality disorders. We see that antisocial personality disorder affects about 3% of the population, but depending on what literature you look at, up to 80% of the population in correctional settings. We see the definition of antisocial personality disorder is broken to a few different criteria, and criterion A has the symptom criteria. Three of the seven symptom criteria must be met to satisfy criterion A. So with the symptom criteria, we see a tendency to violate social norms, and usually we look at this as committing actions that could be grounds for arrest. We see deceitfulness, impulsivity, irritability or aggression, a disregard for the safety of others, irresponsibility, and a lack of remorse. Criterion B indicates that in order for somebody to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, they must be at least 18 years of age. With criterion C, we see that conduct disorder symptoms must have been present before the age of 15. So just as is the case with all personality disorders, there's no such thing as late onset antisocial personality disorder. We see with criterion D that the antisocial behavior cannot occur exclusively during the course of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Now moving on to the construct of psychopathy, we see here that psychopathy is an area that's studied. It's not a mental disorder. Someone can't really be diagnosed as having psychopathy or not in a technical sense. Of course, antisocial personality disorder, as I mentioned, is a disorder. We see that with psychopathy, it's often used in forensic settings, and there are a few instruments that are fairly popular to measure psychopathy. One of those is the psychopathy checklist revised. And there are a few different cutoff scores with this instrument. The prototypical psychopath that's referred to with this instrument, the cutoff score here is 30, and high psychopathy, the cutoff score is 22. So again, even though somebody can't be diagnosed with psychopathy, someone could be considered to have this construct or not. This can still be made dichotomous, although usually we do think of it more as on a continuum as opposed to antisocial personality disorder, which of course is usually conceptualized as dichotomous. Either somebody meets the criteria 
or they don't. Psychopathy affects about 1% of the population, and in forensic settings, about 16% of males are affected, and about 7% of females are affected. So I'm going to conceptualize psychopathy using the Psychopathy Checklist Revised, again, because that's a very popular instrument that has high reliability and high validity. So here with this instrument, we see the psychopathy can be divided into two factors, and each of those factors can be divided into two facets. So with psychopathy, we have two factors and a total of four facets. Factor one is interpersonal and affective, and factor two is referred to as social deviance. With factor one, we have two facets. One of them is interpersonal, and the other is affective. So with the interpersonal facet, we see certain characteristics. We see superficial charm. We see grandiosity, like we might see with narcissistic personality disorder. We see pathological lying, also considered to be associated with narcissistic personality disorder, and a tendency to be manipulative. With facet two, this is the affective facet, we see a lack of remorse, like we would see with antisocial personality disorder. We see shallow affect, and usually when we think of shallow affect in personality disorders, we think of histrionic personality disorder. We see being callous and having a lack of empathy. And again, this would have a fairly close relationship, we would think, with narcissistic personality disorder. And we see a failure to accept responsibility. Moving to factor two, again, this is social deviance. Facet three, which would be the first facet of social deviance, this is referred to as lifestyle. So here we see a need for stimulation, like we might see with high extroversion. We see a parasitic lifestyle, a lack of realistic long-term goals, impulsivity, like we would see with antisocial personality disorder and borderline personality disorder, and irresponsibility, like we would see with antisocial personality disorder. Now, facet four, which is the second facet for social deviance, is the antisocial facet. Here we see poor behavioral controls, early behavioral problems, juvenile delinquency, a revocation of conditional release, and criminal versatility. Of course, all these could be related to antisocial personality disorder. So now with this overview of antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy in mind, what are the theories about the relationships between these two constructs? Well, actually, there are quite a few theories, and I'm going to break them into really just two categories. One category is that essentially these two constructs are the same thing. Perhaps psychopathy is an extreme version of antisocial personality disorder, but generally these represent the same set of symptoms. The second theory is that there is a similarity between these two constructs, but technically they are different, and this technical difference is important. Antisocial personality disorder relates strongly to factor two, that would be the social deviance factor, and it relates weakly to factor one. That's the interpersonal and affective characteristics. So again, we're looking at a lot of research here on these constructs, and I'm just breaking this down in a fairly simple way into two basic groups. So with this particular study, we see that they used 136 participants who were in a secure forensic mental health facility. This was in Australia. And we see some interesting results here as they compared psychopathy to antisocial personality disorder. They used the psychopathy checklist revised and a screening version of that same instrument, and of course, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 
for antisocial personality disorder. What we saw here is that individuals with a score on the PCLR of greater than or equal to 22, so that's high psychopathy, were 12 times more likely to have antisocial personality disorder than those scoring less than 22. Now, this trend didn't continue as they moved the cutoff score higher, and the theory here is that sample size was simply too small. There was a prior study that showed that even with a cutoff score of 30, greater than or equal to 30, so that would be the prototypical psychopath cutoff score, that individuals with that score were 11 times more likely to have antisocial personality disorder. So we didn't really see that again in this study, but other studies have shown that. Now, when using a cutoff score greater than or equal to 30, so that prototypical psychopath cutoff score, 67% of individuals with that score were diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, but only 6% of individuals with antisocial personality disorder had a score of greater than or equal to 30. So we can see a real difference here in terms of how these two constructs relate. If someone has psychopathy, they're likely to have antisocial personality disorder. But if somebody has antisocial personality disorder, they're not necessarily likely to have psychopathy. Another finding from this study, and this is really not surprising, is that antisocial personality disorder had a strong positive correlation with factor two, the social deviance factor of psychopathy and a fairly weak relationship with factor one. And the strongest relationship with antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy really was on that facet four of social deviance. So facet four of factor two. This is the antisocial facet. And it really shouldn't be surprising that the antisocial facet of psychopathy has a strong relationship with antisocial personality disorder. That kind of makes sense. So we saw some interesting results with this study. There was a small sample size, and of course the sample was taken in Australia, so it can't necessarily be generalized to the entire world. But still, interesting results, and it really shows us results that are fairly consistent with the results from prior research about this relationship between these two constructs. What is the sociopathic stare? Sometimes this is referred to as the psychopathic stare, which may actually be a better name for that. I'll get to that in a minute. So this particular construct, the sociopathic stare, is sometimes observed with psychopathy and sociopathy. The evidence that supports it's really more anecdotal, and there are not really a lot of research studies out there that have studied this construct. Robert Hare, who created the psychopathic checklist, which is a fairly popular instrument for assessing psychopathy, indicated that he would observe a fixated stare, a prelude to self-gratification or an exercise of power in individuals that he was assessing who had psychopathy. He also indicated that it was not a stare of interest or of empathy. Now, we've heard the stare referred to by a lot of descriptors. For example, cold, detached, emotionless, lifeless, dead, blank, empty, Icy, intense, piercing, and penetrating. So a lot of different adjectives to describe this particular phenomenon. So to understand the sociopathic stare or the psychopathic stare, we need to understand a little bit about psychopathy versus sociopathy and how that relates to antisocial personality disorder. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. 
That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So psychopathy is a construct. It's an area of study. And we see with psychopathy there are two factors, factor one and factor two. With factor one, we see traits like superficial charm, grandiosity, being callous or unemotional, This construct of fearless dominance is also referred to as boldness. Being manipulative, having a lack of empathy, remorse, guilt, having shallow affect or a shallow display of emotions, and pathological lying. Again, all those characteristics are related to factor one, psychopathy. This factor is sometimes referred to as interpersonal affective. Now for factor two, this is referred to as social deviance. We see a different set of characteristics. We see excitement-seeking, a parasitic lifestyle, impulsivity, irresponsibility, poor behavioral controls, and criminal versatility. So really, factor two psychopathy is much closer to the diagnosis in the DSM of antisocial personality disorder than factor one psychopathy. And a lot of times when we talk about sociopathy, we're really talking about factor two psychopathy which is why earlier I indicated that the sociopathic stare is really probably better referred to as the psychopathic stare, because a lot of the characteristics with factor one psychopathy appear to line up with this particular type of staring, like being callous, unemotional, having fearless dominance, and having shallow affect. Other constructs don't seem to align too well with this particular type of staring, like pathological lying, being manipulative, and superficial charm. You would think that these characteristics would be kind of incongruent with the stare because the stare would have an effect on individuals where it would make them nervous or fearful. And really, if you're trying to lie, that might not be the best strategy. And superficial charm seems to be fairly inconsistent as well. In terms of being manipulative, I guess you could make an argument that it's both congruent and incongruent in some ways with the stare. And I'll talk about that in a moment as well. So really, when we talk about psychopathy and sociopathy and antisocial personality disorder, and we talk about the stare, 
Again, we're mostly talking about factor one psychopathy. So this construct of the psychopathic stare is interesting, but is it real? Well, as I mentioned before, it is supported by some anecdotal evidence. There aren't really a lot of research studies that directly support it. It may be a characteristic of psychopathy and sociopathy, but if it is, it's certainly nonspecific. So let's talk about some of the research that maybe supports and to some degree refutes this construct. So with the construct of psychopathy, in particular that callous, unemotional characteristic, we see this is actually associated with impaired eye contact. So this information leads us to believe that the psychopathic stare maybe isn't real. Now we also see decreased reactivity to facial expressions with psychopathy. In particular, a deficit in the ability to recognize fear and distress. So here we believe an individual becomes more focused on their goal because they're not distracted by fear and distress. This would tend to support the idea of the psychopathic stare. We see in 2016 there was an article published by Joyner and colleagues where they theorized that an unblinking stare, so a low blink rate, may be associated with violence and suicide. But really this study was there to draw more attention to this construct and didn't deliver a lot of direct evidence in support of it. Now we also see in a study published in 2017 by Wick and colleagues that staring can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. And we have to consider the nature of staring and how it's interpreted. So a sustained direct eye gaze, staring, can be interpreted by some as threatening and this can lead to fear. But by others, it can be interpreted as a sign of attraction, interest, or even love. This is really dependent on who's perceiving the stare. If someone's inclined to anxiety or distress, they're going to interpret that stare as, again, threatening and tend to avoid the person doing the staring. There's a submissive component here. Now, if somebody's confident, secure, and dominant, they're going to be comfortable and maybe even approach the individual who's staring and confront or challenge them. So sometimes if you have two individuals who are both dominant and who are both staring, this could result in a verbal argument and maybe even some cases, a physical argument. So we see some research that gives us maybe a little bit of insight into this construct, but as I mentioned before, this characteristic is nonspecific. So what that means is you really can't use it validly to make an assessment. It can be information that's helpful, but it doesn't really point clearly to a diagnosis, for example. So we have this construct of the psychopathic stare, as I mentioned, of course, a sociopathic stare, but also there's a narcissistic stare, and this construct tends to be linked to psychopathy. There's an overlap between these two constructs. We see a stare associated with borderline personality disorder that we think is more based on anger. We see a stare with paranoid personality disorder, which is really more of an evaluative stare. Somebody's trying to determine if they can trust another individual. We see a stare associated with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which of course we think is a compulsion. And we see a stare associated with schizophrenia. This is usually described as staring into space. And eye tracking doesn't occur here. So somebody's not going to move their eyes and track you as you move around the room, usually with schizophrenia, usually they'll just keep staring past you. With psychopathy, we usually think of the eye tracking as being in place. They're gonna follow you as you move. Now we also see with schizophrenia that this may be caused by the negative symptoms like flat affect. It could be caused by distraction, perhaps from hallucinations. 
And with schizophrenia, we also see a low blink rate. And of course, if somebody doesn't blink very often, that appears to be staring behavior. So what causes the sociopathic or psychopathic stare? Well, here it's really just speculation. But if I had to guess, I would say it's related mostly to that fearless dominance component. Also, it could be a social cognitive deficit, not really understanding how to relate socially, how to navigate relationships. And also, as I mentioned before, it could be related to manipulation. Staring makes people uncomfortable, and this could facilitate manipulation in some situations. But either way, no matter what causes it, we need to use caution when considering the psychopathic stare in appraisal. There are a number of different possible reasons somebody could be staring, and again, this particular characteristic is nonspecific. What is the difference between sociopathy and psychopathy? You may have heard the term sociopath and psychopath. Now we consider sociopathy and psychopathy distinct categories that refer to somebody who would be eligible for the diagnosis antisocial personality disorder. So let me start with that. Let me start with antisocial personality disorder. This is a personality disorder that's typified by a lack of empathy. So it's when an individual has difficulty forming close relationships or cannot form close relationships and can't understand the feelings of another person. That's the empathy part. They can't understand by looking at somebody, by interacting with somebody, how they feel. Also, people with antisocial personality disorder are more likely to break laws, to violate the social norms of society, uh, and to have other mental health conditions. We call them comorbid conditions. Those are conditions that go along with a primary diagnosis. So where's the difference between sociopathy and psychopathy come in? Well, we look at sociopathy as a learned condition. We believe it's oftentimes caused by trauma. So somebody who has sociopathy likely would not have been born with it, but rather they develop it as a product of their environment, of stressors in the environment. Oftentimes, traumatic experiences when the individual is young. Psychopathy, we tend to think of as more a condition based on genetics. Somebody with psychopathy is typically born that way. And there's some differences as well in terms of how somebody with sociopathy and somebody with psychopathy relate to people. Uh, usually we think of somebody with psychopathy as unable to form close relationships. And they just can't do it. Whereas somebody with sociopathy struggles in that area, but they can form meaningful close relationships, particularly with people uh, that they've known a long time. Some other differences when it comes to the criminality. Usually with psychopathy, uh, we think of the criminality as planned out. They carefully plan out crimes. And usually these are crimes where they're stealing or something like that. They're not often uh, horrendous violent crimes, although sometimes, of course, they are. Most times they're crimes that involve uh, using a charming personality and being manipulative and trying to steal. But either way, there's a lot of planning. And somebody with psychopathy is aware of the consequences and considers the consequences usually before they commit a crime. As they're planning out the crime, they, they think about how not to get caught. Somebody with sociopathy does not tend to think about the consequences. The criminal actions are usually more impulsive and they have a lot of anger and other emotions, anxiety and depression, 
a lot of mood dysregulation tied in with criminal acts. Somebody with psychopathy tends to be fairly calm, even when exposed to distressing stimuli involving the crime. Somebody with sociopathy is distressed. They're not calm uh, when committing a crime, not always. They don't have the same cold, calculated feel that somebody with psychopathy would have. So sociopathy and psychopathy, both related to antisocial personality disorder, but they describe a different etiological picture, meaning the cause of the illness, we believe that's different, and the way the symptoms manifest are different as well. So there does appear to be significant differences between sociopathy and psychopathy. And it may be useful to understand these differences when working in mental health, in some cases when looking at people that have antisocial personality disorder. So those are some of the differences we see between sociopathy and psychopathy. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal.